You're listening to PhD of His Podcast. We're a podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. And today, I'm Dr. Zainyao, representing the humanities. Liz and I have been doing this podcast for quite a number of years, from our time from graduate school through to postdocs and now junior faculty. But we haven't been alone in terms of the struggle of being woman of color in the academy, by far, of course. We can think of the groundbreaking volume Presumed Incompetent, which is about the experiences of women of color in the academy. Well, following Presumed Incompetent, there's another fantastic collection called Degrees of Difference, which focuses on the experience of women of color graduate students. And so today I'm delighted to have with me the co-editors of this important volume, Denise and Kim. Welcome to the show. Hi, Zane. Thanks for the invitation. Um, This is Kimberly McKee. I'm currently an associate professor at Grand Valley State University in the Integrative Religious and Intercultural Studies Department. But when we started um, this collection, and I'm sure we're going to discuss this further into the interview, I actually was a postdoc at Grinnell College, and um, the edited collection uh, was developed while I was on the tenure track at Grand Valley before obtaining tenure. And this is Denise Delgado. Uh, I currently work in the behavioral health field. Specifically, I work uh, with uh, minors who have behavioral health issues. And uh, it's really great to be on the podcast today and talk about the book. You both have this collection as well as this really exciting special issue on feminist pedagogy. And I was wondering where we, uh, just opening up to the both of you, where would you like to start the conversation of the the germ that helped to incept the whole idea of this project? Oh, gosh. So um, Denise and I have known each other since graduate school, uh, where we became fast friends uh, through our coursework. And then just um, because we were one of the few women of color within our graduate school program, and that's kind of how we found each other and drifted together. Um, and so through our own conversations around how we were experiencing our racialized and gendered identities in graduate school, and then once I uh, finished the program and Denise was still there, we had been in conversation about, um, you know, how can we tell this story? What can we do? And so part of that actually first resulted in us submitting a uh, roundtable um, abstract to the National Women's Studies Association Conference. And so we actually um, did a roundtable at the November 2014 NWSA in Puerto Rico on the experiences of women of color in WGSS graduate programs. And it was an open discussion that also featured um, friends from our program, as well as um, one of our friends who is white identified, um, who is talking about their experiences as an ally and thinking about what can uh, white folks be doing to help their and support their women of color colleagues within grad programs. Yeah, and I know for me, uh, one of the one of the major issues that that I think really pushed my interest in the book was uh, both Kim and I were part of a graduate group that was called Colorful Women in the Academy, which was women of color. Um, in graduate or professional programs uh, from all over the university. So we had people in there from engineering and, of course, 
women's studies and, and all these different programs. And one of the things that became obvious to us um, the longer we were a part of this was that there were certain things that that all of us seem to have issues with. So uh, whether it came from uh, kind of some frustrations with uh, just the curriculum within the program, some frustrations with uh, people in our cohorts, uh, but also some issues that were coming up with other professors. And so one of the things that that I think really kicked off my interest in the book and and made us decide to do it is we realized that we had certain frustrations that seemed to be not unique to us, not unique to our program and not unique to our university. Because whenever we would go to places like NWSA, we would find um, other women of color to speak with who were having similar issues. And so we noticed a lot of the, the work um, that talked about women of color in the academy. I mean, there are some great books like Presumed Incompetent um, that discuss kind of on the faculty side, but there are some things that we felt was important to discuss like as grad students in particular, because grad students don't get paid a lot, uh, that there are certain um, kind of exploitive behaviors that can happen in grad school. And because uh, that there are certain things that make it just hard for women of color to complete grad school successfully. And so, um, oh, and, and there are also some very legitimate reasons why women of color decide to not complete grad school. So we wanted to create a book to kind of help, um, both to process some of our own feelings about what was happening, but also to help other women of color, uh, and give them kind of a starting point. And, and I mean, one of the things that was great about it is we got to read so about so many women who kind of came up with their own ways to combat kind of the, the racism and classism that exists in academia. And so it, it was also just this way of like creating community and elevating these voices uh, that Kim and I thought was really important to add to the discussion. So you mentioned the special section um, that I actually co-edited with a different colleague of mine from graduate school, Adrienne Winans. And Adrienne uh, is a faculty member. She's an assistant professor at Utah Valley University. And it was a special section for a feminist teacher um, on women of color in the academy. And so although it was a publication, um, it came out in winter 2019. It has the publication date of 2017, just based on the journals. Um, own publication process. So if you're looking for that, that's how you're going to end up finding it. Um, and so that special section basically arose because as we were working with University of Illinois Press and Don Durante, Don suggested thinking about what articles or what essays and contributions were best suited actually for the edited collection and what might actually be a better fit for a discussion around pedagogy. And then by, at that point um, where Denise was within her career, um, I reached out to Adrienne to see if she would want to work on that with me. And I, for me, I see these projects very much in conversation with each other, especially because that special section, not only did we actually pull some essays that were originally going to be within the edited collection to be in that special section, but we also had solicited a new CFP for additional um, 
contributions. And so I see these very much in conversation with one another. That's fantastic. And this work is more urgent than ever with the resurgence of Black Lives Matter, that we see students rallying against anti-Blackness and structural racism in general. And I think that this volume speaks to that. Would you like to talk a little bit about the calls for change inspired by Black Lives Matter in relation to the book? When I think about the edited collection, one of the first things I think about is how the contributors make legible the various racial microaggressions and exclusions that they had to negotiate to succeed in their program, to make room for themselves and their work, whether it's creating tips about how to survive medical school um, as, a, as a Black woman, whether it's discussing social work, um, or even thinking about negotiating and carving out space at a PWI as an Asian American. Uh, these women create a collective voice, thinking about what's at stake when we both speak out and push back, and also what happens when we do create these transformative experiences for ourselves in graduate school. In terms of this current political moment, the contributors in their various essays reckon with anti-Blackness, even if that's not necessarily fully named, whether it's um, the contribution from Jenny Wells and Delise Mugabo discussing what it means to be uh, a woman of color in Canada and in this particular Canadian multicultural context, right? So thinking about how to Black Lives Matter isn't just a unique moment happening in the United States, but also thinking about how Black Lives Matter protests have traveled transnationally. Um, and so that's really important. At the same time, I think this project lends itself to really considering the ways in which um, faculty, staff, um, and administrators within colleges and universities can really work toward transforming what it means to actually be inclusive. Uh, one of the things I actually think a lot of folks are grappling with right now is all of these pro professed statements um, around Black Lives Matter by universities aren't necessarily aligning with some of the reopening plans um, universities yeah, are doing right now around COVID and thinking about how that affects the most vulnerable to both COVID but also thinking about uh, the treatment of women of color who are raising these kinds of concerns. And so when you think about that from a faculty perspective, you see one lens, but I think it's really important too, when we're having these discussions is how is this affecting graduate students who may be both teaching in the classroom, but also still taking coursework. And I think one of the things that, that I find interesting is that uh, while we were actually working on the edited volume, um, there were protests, Black Lives Matter protests happening, say, at Ohio State University that I was a part of um, that had followed the death of Trayvon Martin and um, some others. So I also, I mean, one of the things that is really good to see is that particularly given the fact that the approval ratings just in general have gone up and that, that people seem to be reckoning a bit more than they were willing to several years ago um, with 
what it means to have this kind of institutionalized violence, but in general, what it also means to be complicit with different kinds of of racism. And I think that that one of the things that we kind of address in the book, and, and it's addressed in several of the chapters, is the idea that That one of the things that I think it's it's very easy to do is, and well, I will think the part of this is, I, going into a women's studies program, I had this certain assumption of, like, this is going to be a progressive space, uh, that the, like, racial politics are going to be good here, um, and that I had a certain, and and it was did not end up being the case, but a a certain notion that the cohort that I had and, and my peers and my professors would essentially be allies. Um, and once actually going to grad school, I found that that while there certainly were allies there and, and that that was not something that I could assume, not even in a space that is supposed to have these kind of progressive values. Uh, and I mean, I think that it, the way it shows up um, can be a lot of different things. So, I mean, I think part of the issue can be uh, there was a, a time when I was teaching a class and I had been in the office area and I was talking to a a friend of mine who was in my cohort who, um, and she was a black woman and we were talking about how to deal with racism when it comes up in our classrooms. And so, um, I was talking about, you know, while I was teaching about certain immigration issues and some of the things that my students had said and how I was trying to like, like say like, well, I see why you think that. Um, Another way to approach it is, so trying to think of some way to redirect them while not making them feel bad and also trying to make sure that we are keeping the conversation moving. Um, and she uh, was having kind of similar issues. So we were talking about how you maneuver that in a classroom. Um, and like that night or the day after I received an email from a, a white peer of mine um, that both of us received saying it was inappropriate for us to talk about this in the office. Uh, um, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, you know, we we're talking about, about teaching and about how to properly like get concepts through to our classes, but also our experiences with teaching. And I don't, I don't understand like if the office isn't the place for this conversation, I am really curious as to where that place is. Um, also, one of your peers, so another graduate student. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Policing. Wow. Um, and so, and I mean, it was also this really kind of odd moment because <laughs> yeah, it was it was an odd moment. And I would say that that these that those kept coming up. Um and that they kept coming up from people who if you asked them they were if they were allies, they would have said yes. Uh but that their behavior didn't always show it. And so I feel like um that there are these blunders on uh where people are very able to point out um, other people's mistakes and other people's issues, but are not even halfway as self-reflective about their own. Um, and so I feel like 
Like there's a lot of space here for growth. I also think that that this issue hasn't been properly addressed. I mean, it's it's great that we are calling out racism and issues and and institutionalized violence and police violence. Um, but I, I do think that it is harder with us to grapple with our, our own issues um, than it is to point out the issues that other people have. Um, and so, and I also think that the, the additional thing that becomes a factor is, is the, the way class plays a huge part in this. So I think that, that one of the, the things that was really shocking to me was, uh, and I think it's actually a small anecdote in the book, um, but my first year of grad school, like going to uh, a function for essentially like our cohort and having the partners of one of the, one of my cohort make a joke about how like community college isn't like real college um, and make like these kind of jokes where, A, I did start off at community college before transferring to a four-year university, but a lot of Latinos do in general. Um, And that like many people of color, particularly those who are from lower income families do have to start off through the community college system. So there was also these, these like very like both classed and racialized things that I feel like if you were a grad student, I mean, part of it, the book is saying like, these things will come up. You will experience these things. People who you think will be allies will not be allies. Um, But also the fact that, that you also have to grapple with the fact that you are in to a certain extent by only by being in grad school, um, in kind of an advantageous position to a certain extent, being able to get an education that a lot of people will never be able to get. So. I see myself as recommending this book, particularly in the UK context, because there are even fewer faculty of color here, if you can believe it or not. And so because of that, we're also just lacking the resources for faculty of color and students of color um, at every level. But I was going to shift gears a little bit. Uh, For those who haven't yet read your book, you have an Inside Higher Ed article that you um, co-authored where you managed to distill the points of your book into three major points for how programs should support graduate students of color. Would you like to talk a little bit about those? Sure. So I think both Denise and I worked on it together. And for us, you know, the three crucial components that we highlight for administrators as well as faculty and staff were that they should first encourage the creation of community and mentoring of mentoring networks. Uh, they should demonstrate an intentional commitment to departmental inclusivity in the curriculum and the overall graduate program. And then lastly, offer transparent economic assistance and support. For Denise and I, we were very intentional as we moved through our graduate program to create a community. And part of that community creation were both formal and informal mentoring opportunities, whether it was through my participation with GradPAC, the Graduate Pan-Asian Caucus, um, as well as within Asian American Studies or Denise's work with uh, the Latino Graduate Student Association on campus, LG, is it LGPSA, Denise? Uh, that's what it was. It has actually since changed its name, but yes. Okay. Um, 
as well as thinking about what it means to be inclusive um, and intentional towards both diversity within the curriculum and then in the overall graduate program. For us, this came from conversations that we were having, not only about our cohort, um, but also thinking about what does, where are we taking classes where we're focusing on women of color or indigenous scholars? Where are we taking classes or interacting with folks where whiteness is being intentionally decentered? Um, and what are those course offerings? Is it a class because we're specifically taking a special topics course on intersectionality? Or is it something that's going to be woven within uh, your feminist theory or a feminist pedagogy class, right? And then the last component that we highlighted about transparent economic assistance and support is because we find, and we continue to find, throughout our graduate program that there wasn't necessarily a master list or source about different funding opportunities on campus. And I think in this particular political moment that we're in for higher education right now, having transparent economic assistance and support is going to be critical to ensure that graduate students of color and indigenous graduate students are able to persist and um, and sustain sort of the work that they're doing within their programs, especially um, to go back to what we were discussing earlier, thinking about what's going on with Black Lives Matter and reckoning with institutionalized racism and violence is that graduate programs and just departments more generally in colleges more broadly need to be really intentional about not trying to already ex to further exploit their black graduate students or their graduate students of color more broadly and indigenous graduate students um, on panels or at speaking events just because that might be their area of expertise. Um, it's great to amplify those voices, but we should also make sure that those folks are getting compensated in some way. We should really be intentional about not extracting labor that we're not valuing in these other ways. I just wanted to add in one little thing. Um, the both kind of connects to what we talked about um, inside higher ed, but also to the, the last discussion. Uh, I think that the, the other thing for me is to, I mean, part of, of saying that, that we care um, about, about Black people, but I would also say about people of color in general is also recognizing the way that the larger decisions that colleges make and the impact that that has on certain communities. So for instance, um, beyond graduate students, colleges who are choosing to open, um, open back up in say August, uh, the possible dangers that it'll put people in, particularly uh, people who work, say, do service jobs and other kinds of positions there, which tend to be lower income um, and that in general also tend to to skew towards people who are people of color. Um, so like the impact that that'll have on them. And I suppose the other big thing is, is, is some colleges choosing to reopen that have, say, like campus police and not really grappling with what it means to have campus police at this at this point in time and how essentially how that affects the safety of the 
the student body, but also the professors and other like black members of that college community of having those police there and, and making sure that, that the colleges are doing everything that they need to do to make sure that students feel safe on their campus. So I can see a perverse dynamic coming into play that on the one hand, with the mandate to come to back to campus and to be safe, probably means the rise of different surveillance and security forces, namely, of course, the campus police. And so perversely, in the name of campus safety, we can see the way that the use of campus police will probably exacerbate anti-Blackness on campus with the further targeting of Black students and Black people in general. So what Denise was just mentioning and what you alluded to, Zine, is I was thinking about the Black in the Ivory Twitter hashtag that took off uh, earlier in June uh, and how that relates to what contributors within the edited collection were talking about, right? So thinking about the experiences and examples that they share in their writings, both within degrees of difference, but also in that special section of Feminist Teacher about what it means to negotiate uh, higher ed. And so you saw voices um, both speaking from the role as faculty, but also graduate students and reflecting, as well as obviously students and reflecting on what that means to them. I think as we move forward and look ahead, for me, as we were putting together the collection, I was also simultaneously mentoring undergraduate students of color, um, as well as other marginalized undergraduate students. And as they shared their own experiences of um, negotiating their racialized gendered bodies within higher ed is, is thinking about what advice am I trying to give them as they want to go to graduate school, as they want to pursue graduate school? How are we trying to transform this place that can be very violent toward scholars of color and indigenous scholars, right? And for me, it was being very clear about how I think graduate school is a wonderful place. I want to encourage all folks of color um, and marginalized folks to uh, go to graduate school, work to transform higher education. You know, I love what I'm doing, right? But also, how are we preparing them by talking about and having some of these really difficult conversations about the racism and the sexism that people are encountering? I think for me as an Asian American woman, one of the big pieces is how I am continually coming up against and negotiating model minority discourse um, that makes assumptions about both the kind of work that I'm doing, but also the motivating factors around that work, as well as how I experiencing how I experience racism and that sort of thing. And so really being mindful of my own um, identity and what I can be doing to leverage um, different points of that identity to be more supportive of my Black colleagues, to be more supportive of other marginalized faculty and marginalized students um, in those conversations. And then imparting that information, advice uh, to my undergraduate students and my former students as they think about pursuing and preparing to go to graduate school. I think it's such a fine balance. On the one hand, you never want to deter graduate students of color from entering the academy, but you also want to make sure that they'll be sufficiently 
aware of the obstacles they face, as well as to know it's not the only option for themselves or for their communities. But to shift gears a little bit, um, in your volume, you're talking of not just about, of course, students like, your, like yourselves back then who were in women's studies, but across many different disciplines. And a lot of the stories are from the STEM perspectives. I was wondering if you'd like to reflect a little bit about the interdisciplinary aspect of the book. We were working on the volume and based on reviewer feedback and in conversations with the press, we really wanted to make sure we were highlighting not just folks in the humanities, but also folks in STEM. That said, one of the struggles for just thinking about representation in STEM is the fact that there is such a small percentage of women of color within STEM and the fact that contributions like this may not necessarily count. So if they're already in tenure track jobs, writing and contributing to degrees of difference, while would be a really great endeavor to support um, a growing pipeline or whatever metaphor you wanna to use to talk about moving folks from undergraduate to graduate school and then to the prof professoriate or even all act industry careers, right? Um, because there's so few numbers, um, we wanted to also make sure that those, those contributors were being able to do so without risking other, for other things, right, in terms of their own careers. And so we worked intentionally um, to reach out to folks, but we also recognized, too, that sometimes folks have to say no because of where they currently are. Um, and I think that really speaks to what it means to have these conversations within the sciences, to have these conversations with thinking about medical school. Um, we're really appreciative of our contributor who was able to reflect on the medical industrial complex and negotiating that as a woman of color. And what does that mean to create a space? Um, also thinking about the voices, reflecting on um, what it means to make room and broaden up curricula within the social sciences, too. And I will say that the, the thing that we wanted to do is, and I think this was in part um, because we were both active in Colorful Women in the Academy, that, that because we had say women who weren't there from engineering and all of these different fields. And we did notice that there are, of course, some similarities, but there were uh, some differences and some things that are unique to the particular field that you're in. So some fields um, do have more prominent um, scholars of color that, that actually are featured in the curriculum. And there are others where that is not so much the case. So I mean, one of the things that we wanted to do was to, I mean, we can't cover like every possible field a grad student could go into, but we we really wanted to create a book that no matter what field you were going into, that you could open this book and get something from it. So not just if you were in the humanities, but if you were, you know, planning on being a dentist or a lawyer and you were a woman of color, you could open this book and say like, oh, these things are helpful or it's good to be warned about these things and to essentially make it applicable to everyone, um, which does mean that it's not about one particular experience or one 
particular field. So that does mean that, you know, there will be chapters where the things that are talked about don't apply to you as much. But I also, at least from my perspective, I think that that one of its strengths is, is that while not everything applies to you, I actually think that it's also good for getting like a really interesting snapshot into other fields and the kind of struggles the women of color are having in other fields as well. Um, so I found that that keeping it broad, uh, I felt like it was a really good decision simply because I think that it, it will be helpful for more people. And then it will also, it informed me a lot while I was, you know, while we were going through all of the papers and all of the chapters that would eventually go into the book, I learned a lot about different fields and what women of color were dealing with in different fields. And, and so that was also uh, eye-opening for me as well. I think what, sorry, I think what Denise is alluding to too is the fact that this, this book isn't meant to be exhaustive. It's not to feature every example uh, because that is at risk for tokenism, right? And so what we were trying to do is build a holistic portrait of what graduates, the graduate school experience is for women of color and thinking about how that has through lines that run very similar, um, albeit maybe slightly different um, depending on where the person is situated um, in both context of program, uh, but also thinking about location as well. But again, as Denise was mentioning, it's about when you open up the book and you start reading the essays is thinking about how those experiences may be very similar to what you are experiencing. And if you're, if you're a white reader is thinking about, well, I didn't realize perhaps that my colleague or my graduate student or my undergraduate student was feeling these things. It really actually reminds me in terms of just other women of color opening the book up is thinking about that concept of racial mirrors you hear a discussed a lot within adoption studies, which is my field, um, as well as thinking about children's literature, right? So thinking about having kids being able to have these racial mirrors, and this isn't to really infantilize women of color, but rather just thinking about how that concept is, is very applicable when thinking about making sure that our stories are heard. So making sure that people recognize that what women of color faculty are talking about in books like Presumed Incompetent isn't just something that folks experience once they become a faculty member, right? These are stories and these are experiences that we're taking with us from graduate school. The same people that are enacting those microaggressions in graduate school, like Denise brought up at the beginning of this interview about um, a graduate student peer saying that the shared office space wasn't the place to have that discussion about teaching while a woman of color, um, those are going to be your same colleagues moving forward. And so thinking about, well, how can we do better? How can we be better to create a new experience for the next generation of scholars? Kim, you just provided a great segue to my next question, which is what was the relationship between your research, the both of you, and this project at the time? Or how did it help to feed uh, many other projects? My graduate student work was actually dealing with uh, activist responses to SB 1070, which was the immigration law that was passed in the U.S. 
which al- allowed the state uh, to ask for your documentation papers. Um, and so increase the, the policing on brown people in general uh, within Arizona. Uh, and so my my dissertation was actually looking at how different activists responded to it and the kind of counter narratives they were creating uh, to combat the law. And I think that I mean some of the things that I touch on briefly to just talk about like the policing of bodies is you know I I touched on things like like stop and frisk and and those other issues, the kind of ways in which um, bodies are made hyper-visible and policed. And I think that my dissertation is about this this kind of policing of brown bodies. Well, I think that the one of the things our book kind of talks more about is the, the way in which people of color within academia, to a certain extent, become that we become like representatives of the university and how diverse they are. So I think one of the, the additional labors that, that we talked about in the book that is put on, um, that is put on women of color is to just like, you have to be present at things even more than the, the white students do, because you have to show that, I mean, I would get emails sometimes saying that like, you know, like I, I'd like you there to help, you know, represent this population kind of thing. Um, and, and I don't really want that. And I mean, I will say like going into when I had my weekend, when I visited Ohio state and was deciding whether I wanted to go to grad school there. I mean, one of the things that it did impact that was that I had some really great conversations with several faculty of color, with other graduate students of color. Um, and so, I mean, that, that did play a part. So, so I get, I get why there is that that encouragement. Um, but I do believe that it is an additional pressure, an additional type of labor, uh, that whether you're a grad student or whether you're a faculty member, like, like realizing like you represent diversity and particularly for departments where there are only a couple of people of color, you really have to show up because if you're not there, that's like half the, the diversity is gone. Um, (laughs) But I actually think that uh, for the work I do now, because I work in the behavioral health field and uh, I am, I actually think that that my passion for that became, I did a couple of things in graduate school. Um, So I worked for uh, Frontiers as an editorial assistant um, and that uh, is a feminist journal. Um, But I also did some brown bag things and and was a part of certain student governments and organizations. And one of the things that I did as part of that was kind of open the narrative about, um, about the effect that graduate school and the kind of stress of graduate school can take on mental health. And I did have a, my, in, in undergrad, I got a degree in psychology and a degree in women's studies. But one of the things that I had not anticipated and kind of uh, became more prominent in grad school is the the stress of the job, particularly the stress of a job that doesn't have clear set hours, which continues if you uh, 
go on to become a faculty member. So, I mean, it, it allows you a certain amount of flexibility, which is great, but there was all, I had the sense of like, you know, there are more books in your field that you should be reading. And there are like more articles that you should be writing. And there are like all of these other things you should be doing. So whenever I wanted to play a video game or watch some TV, like I had this constant sense of guilt. Um, and then, you know, always having to be on my email, I was getting email from students, I got emails. Um, as the editorial assistant, I was actually managed all the emails that came into Frontiers. And so uh, that like, if I was gone for like eight hours away from my computer or my phone, uh, that I would come back and I would have like 100 emails. And so I actually found I started getting very stressed about opening emails. Uh, and so I think that um, some of the the stress uh, kind of uh, made me more aware of the things that I needed to do to protect my my mental health. Um, but also when I started talking about it, I found that there were other grad students who had been kind of embarrassed by things like panic attacks while needing to op open an email um, or who were so worried that they weren't going to get a tenure track position or any position after they graduated, that that was causing all kinds of anxiety and different issues. And so I feel like, uh, that what I'm doing now is to a certain extent a result of the the kind of interest that I had in in wanting to make more visible the the struggles that we were having with mental health because I feel like it makes it worse when you you feel like I'm reacting so strongly to this it's probably just me because I don't hear other people talking about it and so one of the things particularly in my last few years of grad school that I tried to do was I mean we had some panels where we talked about it um, but also just trying to be more open with my colleagues and say that, you know, yeah, I get, I get really stressed out sometimes and I've had panic attacks and that like, that some people react really well to grad school and they don't feel this stress and others of us take it, <laughs> take it kind of hard and that, that like, that's perfectly fine. Denise, I think you ended at a very perfect moment for me to say, I really liked grad school. So if you ask anybody who I was good friends with in grad school, I loved it. Um, I found that the unstructured time was really good for me. I did not necessarily feel guilty about watching TV. And as Denise could probably attest, I watched a lot of TV while in graduate school, like a ton of television <laughs> in graduate school. I started new shows in graduate school that I still like to watch today. For me, when it came to this project and what I took from it from working on both my dissertation, but also as I transitioned from a postdoc to on the tenure track and now tenured, it was thinking about how can I make more visible some of the racial microaggressions that I experienced um, and how can I, as I'm making those visible and making them legible, how can I work to support and amplify other folks who are also sharing those similar experiences? So we recognize them as valid. I think for me, one of the conversations that I'm continuously a part of is thinking about student evaluation. 
We all know student evaluations are biased. It's like knowing water is wet, as a friend of mine always says, right? <laughs> and yet sometimes even still we see how th those kinds of things are written off, right? Oh, it's just so-and-so because, you know, it's not rooted in, in academic literature, et cetera. Except for as you're seeing more and more people saying the same things, I think people really need to recognize and do a little bit of self-reflection about, hey, maybe this actually is a thing, right? And so my dissertation and first book focused on Korean international adoption. Um, the book is called Disrupting Kinship, Transnational Politics of Korean Adoption in the United States. It's also through University of Illinois Press. And as I was working on that book, and as I was dissertating, one of the things that I took, and I think really tried to be intentional about applying to working on the edited collection, is being very clear about my own process, turning my dissertation into a book. I'm very open with folks that I actually did work with a copy editor. Um, it, I, I, I think writing is a process. There are certain things that I know that I am not skilled at. And there are certain things that I'm getting better at, but having that support and help along the way is key. And I don't think being embarrassed about it or pretending that folks don't work with editors, um, I, I, I don't see why that's actually worthwhile. I also am a huge believer at trying to uplift and amplify work that other graduate students are doing. So whether it's thinking about my own citational practices but also as I'm reading work, making sure that we are citing those folks that are doing work that may not necessarily be in publications um, that are as heavily cited. And so making sure you know, that I'm thinking about what graduate students currently are doing cool work when I was in graduate school, how can we best put folks together and in conversation with one another? Um, and as I said, when I first started answering this question, I really enjoyed grad school. I, I like email. I like responding to email. I'm less good at it now than I was in graduate school. This does not mean I want people emailing me all the time, but I think it's also being clear about how your responses to graduate school are, are purely personal. And I think it's so easy when you're in the moment in grad school to compare with one another, I think faculty do it as well. And I don't actually think that it's healthy. And one of the best things that I try to practice as well as share with friends is that the work that I'm doing and the rate in which I'm doing it and the speed in which I'm doing it is what works for me. It doesn't have to work for, for somebody else, nor should it. This is a very individualized experience that when we build community and when we have these conversations, we can have very healthy relationships. Unfortunately, I think um, graduate school can build some unhealthy relationships with folks as people are trying to lift one another up, but rather think about it as, um, you know, if not me, then who, right? And so for me, one of the things that I hope people take away as they read Degrees of Difference and even just listening to this podcast is really thinking about how can I best support my peers and how can that support really help support me as I'm growing as a scholar. I think that's a great place to end on. That's not just about supporting ourselves as individuals, but it's about community building. It's about lateral mentorship. The stories shared um, are not only 
very different, but they're also rooted in conversation with other scholarship. And so really thinking too, as you're reading Degrees of Difference, how this fits with what we're reading, um, both say in conditionally accepted column in Inside Higher Ed or in things like Presumed Incompetent or what we're seeing on Twitter, right? And so really thinking about how this is part of a larger conversation. And so making sure that folks who are looking at degrees of difference don't necessarily put it in a silo and say, oh, well, it's only about X or it's only about Y. Rather, it's about a multitude of things. Um, so I really encourage folks to bring an intersectional lens and to bring um, some care to thinking about the stories um, and to also think about how just because you may be an Asian American woman or you may identify as Latinx or as a black woman or indigenous woman, or maybe you identify as white, that this book has stories for everybody, but in particular, they're really here to support women of color and indigenous women to see themselves in a book about graduate school and that experience. I will say one of my favorite parts of of our book is actually the different ways that people have worked to create community. Um, so I would actually say that the, while we do talk about our struggles in grad school, I actually think that one of the things I liked about it is that it's not just like all of these things happen and this, this sucked a lot, uh, that it, it also talks about uh, a lot of really uplifting things and the way people created community and the way they found mentors or they mentored others. And that, that, I actually do think that at least when I read it, I don't get a negative feeling from it. Like I actually think it is an example of all of the ways that the people have, have done really like taken situations, which can be really rough and found like really amazing ways to kind of come combat like mental health issues or, or all of these other things. Um, and I would say that the the other thing I wanted to highlight that it talks about is, um, so I know when I was in graduate school, um, they found a tumor. And so I had to do this whole, like, like I had to have surgery. And so I had like health issues while I was in graduate school. Um, and then some of the other women in the, in the book talk about um, having children and having non-supportive partners. Um talk about having some conflict with family about going to graduate school um, and also just some, some, some disconnection that sometimes can happen when you go on to graduate school. And I think this is more prominent for those of us who are first generation college students, but having family that don't really understand what you do, having friends that you maybe have grown up with or, or are from your, your neighborhood or where you're from who don't understand what you do. Um, and, and like maneuvering through some of those issues as well. So I, I think it's a good mixture of talking about um, things that are specifically professionally related and also talk about how our own personal lives, whether it's our relationships with other people or health issues and all of these things can actually have a huge impact on how you experience graduate school. Thank you so much again, Denise and Kim, for joining me today. And listeners, check out their volume, Degrees of Difference, out from University of Illinois Press. And of course, please rate, review, and subscribe across all the different platforms you listen to your podcasts. Thank you.
Thank you so much for the invitation. Yes, thank you for having us.